If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So Mandela certainly didn't end apartheid. He played a crucial role in its ending. That was Saul Debau discussing Nelson Mandela. It was quite a, a magical moment to meet this man that one had heard so much about. And there was just a fantastic presence and aura about him. And that was Aaron Mazel, an anti-apartheid campaigner, on meeting the South African leader. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. Plus we also have digital editions available for the iPad, for the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. This week's podcast, in a change to the planned schedule, is a Nelson Mandela special, following the recent death of the former South African president. Our first interview is with Professor Saul Debau, who grew up in South Africa and now specialises in the country's history at Queen Mary, University of London. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Professor Debau earlier this week about Mandela's remarkable life and his legacy. So, Saul, what was your personal reaction to Mandela's death? Well, I happened to be in South Africa in, uh, I think, the beginning of July, uh, in that week where everybody expected him to die. And so I suppose, like uh, many South Africans, um, um, I got to the point where I felt rather relieved that he died because um, it frankly didn't seem to be any point in protracting his uh, what must have been a very unpleasant um, experience in hospital and then at home. Um, so when he died, it came immediately as a relief, but uh, also unexpectedly as a bit of a shock. Um, frankly, I didn't expect 
uh, the massive outpouring of uh, international interest, not not to this degree. Uh, that that to me that has taken me by surprise. Um, I mean, inevitably, there's been a, a lot of press coverage um, of of his life and you know as well as his death. Um, what would you say was his his single greatest achievement? Well, I think that undoubtedly that his role in securing the new South Africa uh, after his release in 1919, uh, his, re- his, his role in securing democracy, in helping uh, what was an extremely difficult transition to take place. And more than that, his symbolic role in uh, reconciliation, his support for the new South African constitution those that collection of 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 of, of, of things must be uh, his greatest achievement. Yeah, and I mean, what sort of impression do you have of Mandela the man rather than say Mandela the activist? Because we hear a little a lot about you know what he achieved. Um, mm-hmm. It's quite interesting to see what he was like as as a person. Well, I mean, I'm probably one of the very few South Africans who never met him. So uh, I've listened with interest. Everybody in South Africa has a Mandela story, uh, but I think the great thing about Mandela, perhaps like all great leaders, is that he was fundamentally enigmatic. He was a man of enormous uh, self-discipline and guardedness. And although he cultivated this persona of the world's favorite uncle, uh, he was, in fact, uh, extremely guarded, self-disciplined. Even uh, some of the closest people to him on Robben Island um, have written and given accounts which suggest that he maintained a steely sense of, of reserve. And I think that was part of his power. So, uh, you know, there will increasingly be personal accounts and there'll be revelations of, you know, the real Mandela, uh, people saying things that are not particularly flattering. But I don't, I'm not particularly interested in that aspect of him. I, what is interesting to me is the way in which he used uh, that great self-discipline and sense of distance in order, coupled with this great sense of familiarity, to really generate a sense uh, of personal power. Mm. Um, And just going back to what you're saying about his image as a, you know, a favourite uncle, do you think this was an image that he cultivated himself? Undoubtedly. uh, One of the things we're learning about Mandela, uh, and it should be said just to go back to your last question, that uh, I found uh, uh, the Time magazine cover of February 1990, uh, which features Mandela. And if you look at that cover, you'll see uh, a picture of a man who doesn't look anything like the man who came out of prison uh, immediately afterwards. It looks like a photo efit. And the reason for that is is that uh, there were no photographs, no contemporary photographs of him in circulation because of the bans by the South African government. So Mandela used that sense of absence. He was a man uh, who, emerging out of prison, remade himself. And that wasn't the first time that he remade himself. He made himself in Johannesburg in the 1940s as the man about town. He made himself in his autobiography, which is a sort of Bildungsroman, telling a narrative of growing up um, in the rural Transkei, um, he made, he constructed a narrative about himself as a freedom fighter. He constructed a new narrative about himself as a reconciler. Uh, all these were very, very carefully uh, produced by Mandela, and they were produced um, not just in terms of his sense of gravitas, but very much 
in his sense of dress. He was acutely aware of how he dressed, of how he stood, his posture. Uh, all of this were very, uh, very carefully thought out by Mandela. And uh, the other point is that Mandela himself was produced in his absence. That's to say, I think uh, by the end of the 1960s, early 1970s, uh, even into the mid-1970s, his name had really faded from public view, certainly overseas and even in South Africa. There was sort of residual memories of Mandela and the people around him on Robben Island. By that time, black consciousness, the force that uh, emerged through and after the Soweto riots of 1976, 77, was very much the focus of resistance. The martyrdom of Steve Biko, who was killed by the police in 1977, propelled Biko to the forefront of the struggle. And there was a very definite sense within the anti-apartheid movement, which was aligned to the ANC, that they should now move away they needed to reinstate a single figure because up to then the ANC had always and continued actually to think of collective leadership. That is to say, not to single out any particular leader. Oliver Tambo, the deputy leader in London, became the effective leader. And I think there was a very deliberate decision that was made in about 1978, around the period of his 60th birthday, to focus attention on Mandela, the individual. That had happened before. It had happened in uh, the defiance campaign in the early 50s when he was selected as the volunteer-in-chief. And, of course, it had happened again um, in 1960-61 when Mandela became the effective, or at least the public face, of the guerrilla movement. So there was this very deliberate um, effort to construct Mandela as the personification of the struggle. So there's a kind of dynamic in which he's been constructed in his absence by the anti-apartheid movement. But at the same time, as people go onto the island, uh, visitors, occasionally the press, and meet him, they say, hold on, he isn't just a myth. He really is there. He really is a leader. And so there's this double process of, construct, of, of construction of this image. Uh, but even, you know, even when Mandela came out in, in 1990, uh, if you remember, the whole, you know, the world's media was focused on him. He came out late. They expected him perhaps to come out in a motor car. The television cameras couldn't pick him out at first. And when he came to the Grand Parade and gave his first speech, uh, many people were disappointed. Uh, it was wooden. Um, it was not, in fact, written by him. Um, and it was only afterwards when he went to Bishop Tutu's uh, residence in Constantia and he met the press that another side of him came out, um, that avuncular, um, laughing, ironical, and generous-spirited man. So the Mandela we know is actually a very recent construction, virtually um, everything we know about him has emerged in the last 20 years through his own autobiography, through the biographies, and through his uh, emergence as the uh, perhaps the most recognized political figure um, other than someone like Obama. So how do people reconcile the, um, the Mandela who went into prison um, with the one that emerged? You know, they sounded like they were quite different people. Mm -hmm. when, when Mandela went to prison in 19... 62, and then again permanently in 1964, he was a firebrand. 
and he emerges as this great figure of reconciliation. In 1960-61, Mandela effectively usurps the authority of the then leader of the ANC, um, Albert Lutuli, who is now very much a forgotten figure, but at the time was a very great uh, symbol of reconciliation. He was given the Nobel Prize in 1961, the first South African to be given a Nobel Peace Prize. Mandela moved against Lutuli in order to create Mkuntuwesizwe, the armed wing of the ANC. And it often strikes me that the Mandela who emerges in 1990 in some ways bears closer resemblance to Lutuli of the 1960 than it does, in fact, Mandela himself at that time. Okay. Um, I mean, as a young man, he was very much in favour of, of a black South Africa, um, but his views did change quite a lot, lot in the 1950s. And, you know, he ended up saying that the, the country should embrace all races. What, what was it that changed right. his mind? Well, Mandela was part of a group called the ANC Youth League, which was created in uh, 1943. This was a time where the ANC had uh, really failed to um, create a, a, a strong uh, public presence as a mass organization. That was beginning to shift during the war years, but it was still run by relatively conservative elite group of professionals, churchmen, and so forth. And this group of angry young men uh, people like Mandela, Tambo, Sisulu, um, Da, Lembedi, uh, these people gravitated towards a much more radical position, what was often called an Africanist position, which argued that liberation, freedom had to be led by Africans. It was much more exclusivist. In those early days, there's a sense that uh, many of those people were anti-white. They were certainly very strongly anti-communist. They were anti uh, the involvement of Indians. Um, and Mandela was very much part of this. So this was a kind of chauvinist moment in Mandela's life. But as the ANC alliance, and it was an alliance with other racial groups and other political movements, the trade unions and so forth, emerged, and particularly the Communist Party, Mandela came to realize uh, and understand that the kind of radical Africanism, which then split off again into the Pan-African Congress in 1959, the split away, was not, uh, was not going to work. Um, as a student in the 1940s at the University of Advartisrand, Mandela came to meet uh, many people who were of other political persuasions, liberals, uh, but particularly members of the Communist Party. And it was in the process of working with them politically that he began to rethink his position on African exclusivism. I mean, it's interesting that you were mentioning quite a few of the names of the people who were around um, Mandela, you know, in his youth and, and later on. Because um, sometimes it, it comes across as it was rather a one-man show to, you know, ending apartheid in, in South Africa. Do you think it could have ended without him? Well, it certainly wasn't a, a one-man show. Mandela did not, uh, if one reads the papers uh, and the tributes um, at the moment, there's a sense in which Mandela brought freedom to South Africa. He didn't. Uh, within the ANC, he had, over his long career, two figures 
who um, were his great comrades, and in many instances, certainly in the beginning, were his, as it were, uh, not just co-equals, but perhaps his superiors. Those were Oliver Tambo and Walter Sisulu. Oliver Tambo left South Africa to set up the ANC in exile in 1960. And Although he was the deputy leader of the ANC officially under this idea of collective leadership, it really was Oliver Tambo more than any other single person who held the ANC together. Without Oliver Tambo, it's quite easy to believe that the ANC might have splintered, might have disappeared. In other words, that there wouldn't have been an ANC for Mandela to lead. Uh, Walter Sisulu, his great comrade on the island, of course there were many others, was a source of wisdom, advice, um, I've heard it said that all the right decisions that Mandela made were as a result of the advice that Sisulu gave him on the island. And when he made bad decisions, it was because he was either hadn't spoken to Sisulu or went against Sisulu's advice. So this was very much a collective enterprise. And um, as, as well as that, we have to remember that the great pressures on the South African government really came to a crescendo after the 1976 Soweto uprising, and particularly in the 1980s, where the mass democratic movement, uh, the UDF, the United Democratic Front, the trade union movement emerged as major forces of change. And the ANC became more and more part of that process during the 1980s, but substantially, it was a kind of politics, a style of politics that was, in fact, not what the ANC in exile was pursuing. Without those pressures, certainly Mandela would not have been able to have any kind of social movement uh, to lead. Now, on the question as to whether apartheid would have ended without him, apartheid, in a sense, was ending. Apartheid as a system uh, started in 1948, though, in fact, you can trace it back to its precursor segregation from the beginning of the 20th century. It went through many different phases. Uh, by the 1970s and 80s, it had lost most of its ideological pretensions uh, to be about uh, national self-determination and so forth, Afrikanerdom, it was very much uh, a defense of white supremacy, very much in a Cold War situation, relying on the idea or the notion or the fiction that Moscow's, one of Moscow's great ambitions was to gain control of South Africa, its mineral wealth and so forth. And in that context, um, the kind of a, a part, it, it was really white supremacy that uh, that remained in the in, in the 1980s. Uh, that was coming to an end in any case. But the problem was that by the mid to late 1980s, in a situation of enormous social strife, uh, states of emergency, and so on, the liberation movement had gained a tremendous amount of popular legitimacy, but it simply didn't have the political power and certainly the military power to overthrow the South African government. On the other hand, the South African government had lost virtually all legitimacy, even amongst its own constituency, but it still had all the power. And there was no sense, realistic sense, in which Mkonto were or other parts of the liberation movement were in a position to seize power, to overthrow the government, although they claimed that this is exactly what they wished to do. So, Mandela certainly didn't end apartheid. He played a crucial role in its ending. Mm. 
I mean, he's being branded a terrorist by some for, for advocating violence in the NC's uh, struggle to end apartheid. Um, how far would you agree with that? I don't think that the label terrorist helps at all. I don't think it explains uh, very much. Certainly, the ANC, uh, Umkontawe says where when Mandela was its leader and part of its formation, um, used uh, sabotage, which was directed at, um, at, at, at government targets rather than individuals. Now, that had changed during the 1980s, but Mandela had nothing to do with that. Um, Mandela saw himself in the early 1960s as a guerrilla leader in the tradition of maybe a Fidel Castro or Che Guevara, um, but he certainly didn't advocate at any point the indiscriminate use of violence. He saw violence or he saw struggle as the only option to an obdurate um, South African government, which was simply refusing to listen. And more importantly, he saw the armed struggle as an adjunct to the political struggle. Now, the difficult question is to get the balance, to understand the balance of what does one mean by an adjunct? Was this a political struggle that was supported by an armed struggle? Or was this an armed struggle that believed that politics was an important component? And I think that actually within the ANC and within Mkontoisizwa, there were always very different views on this. But what we can be pretty sure about is that Mandela was, through the 1970s and 80s, was increasingly gravitating to the view that no solution that didn't involve political negotiations would be uh, likely to succeed. But of course, he wasn't the only person who believed this. A key figure in the external ANC, uh, Thabo Mbeki, who became the second president of uh, the new South Africa, replacing Mandela, he too, in exile, uh, took the view that negotiations with the government were important and began to do so, of course, on a deniable basis, secretly, uh, from the mid-1980s. And certainly when he came out of prison, he was you know, quite anti-violence, um, wasn't he? Well, that's not entirely true. When Mandela came out of prison in 1990, there were a lot of rumors uh, within the liberation movement. And the liberation movement is a very vociferous movement, many different tendencies, many different cliques, many different strategies. And uh, there was a substantial body of opinion that actually probably believed that Mandela was more use in prison than he was outside of prison. There were others who wondered whether a man in his 70s was in any position to take over effective leadership. And there was a substantial body of opinion which feared that he was selling out, that he'd been involved in secret negotiations with the government. So when Mandela came out in 1990, the first thing that he had to do was to secure his own legitimacy within the ANC by reminding his followers that he was a loyal member of the ANC. And in order to do that, he had to reassure his followers that all the... Uh, old claims of the liberation movement, that is the transfer of resources, some form of socialism, and the importance of the armed struggle, that these ideals and these ways of seizing freedom, that he was not diverting himself from that. So in fact, if you listen to Mandela giving his first major speech in 1990, it's a very wooden, uh, in many ways, uh, speech which sounds uh, almost anachronistic by the time he delivers it. 
And just finally, what do you, what impact do you think Mandela's death will have on South Africa and you know elsewhere in the world? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about this uh, just a few days, even weeks ago. Uh, there were lots of people saying that the country would go up in flames, that they're predicting outbreaks of racial violence. I think that that was never likely to happen. And I'd be extremely surprised if that does happen. Uh, the big issue at the moment seems to be whether the ANC under President Zuma's leadership, which is becoming increasingly unpopular, mired in corruption and cronyism and patronage, uh, unable to deliver on its promises in terms of redistribution of wealth and the alleviation of poverty. There's a question about whether Zuma will be able to bask in the Mandela glow, and that clearly is what he is trying to do. But even as we saw yesterday at the memorial service in uh, Soweto, where Zuma was booed, um, we may be in a situation where we're actually seeing um, a memorial service uh, commemorating the death not just of one ANC president, but in fact two. So I think there is a great contest now for the legacy of Mandela. And the question is whether the ANC in time will be able to hold uh, its attachment to Mandela and his legacy for the election next year, or whether this will remind people in South Africa of, in fact, the very great difference between the huge moral authority of Mandela and the very diminished stature of his successes in politics today. Hmm, be interested to see what happens, won't it? It will be very interesting to see what happens, and I hope the world continues to pay some attention to South Africa because there is a sense that uh, that the great journalistic interest in Mandela's death uh, will not follow through. But isn't that always the case with uh, public interest stories? That was Professor Saul Debau. Saul is the author of South Africa's Struggle for Human Rights published by Ohio University Press in 2012. And Saul has also contributed to an article about Mandela that will appear in our January issue out in a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, our Christmas issue is still on sale. This month is an ancient Britain special with articles about the Celts, Stonehenge and pagan rituals. Also in the magazine, we're telling the story of the Arctic convoys of the Second World War. We're exploring the impact of the Black Death and revealing the most dangerous animals of Tudor times. If you like the sound of any of that, then why not pick up a copy at All Good News Agents or in a digital format? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now it's time for our weekly history news roundup with our web editor, Emma McFarnan. The final part of a monumental dictionary of medieval Latin, begun a hundred years ago, has been published. The work, titled The Dictionary of Medieval Latin from British Sources, has more than 58,000 entries spanning nearly 4,000 pages. 
Begun in 1913, it is said to be the most comprehensive study ever produced of Latin vocabulary from Britain's medieval period. Meanwhile, a bomb dropped during the Second World War has been recovered from a construction site in Belgrade city centre. The unexploded shell was discovered by construction workers at a depth of 20 feet during an excavation. The bomb has been transported to a military training ground in northern Serbia, where it will be destroyed. In other news, thousands of people gathered at a stadium in Johannesburg earlier this week for a memorial service for Nelson Mandela. US President Barack Obama, Cuban President Raul Castro and UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon addressed the service, as did four of Mandela's grandchildren. The former South African president, who led the fight against South Africa's apartheid regime and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993, died last Thursday, aged 95. Thanks for that, Emma. For more history news, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. And now we have a short advertisement break. Art Under Attack, Histories of British Iconoclasm, is the first exhibition to explore the history of physical attacks on art in Britain from the 16th century to the present day. The exhibition examines the movements and causes which have led to assaults on art through objects, paintings, sculpture and archival material. Highlights include Thomas Johnson's interior of Canterbury Cathedral, 1657, exhibited for the first time alongside stained glass, removed from the windows of the cathedral. Alan Jones's chair, 1969, is on display, as well as evidence of statues destroyed in Ireland during the 20th century. The show considers artists such as Gustav Metzger, Yoko Ono and Jake and Dinos Chapman, who have used destruction as a creative force. Art Under Attack Histories of British Iconoclasm is open at the Tate Britain until January 5th, 2014. For more information, please visit www.tate.org.uk. Dr Aaron Mazel is currently a senior lecturer at Newcastle University, but for many years he lived in South Africa, where he was an active campaigner against the apartheid regime. He spoke to Emma McFarnan about his experiences during these years, and about what it was like to meet Nelson Mandela himself. First of all, maybe you could just run us through um, what your campaigning entailed and uh, when you were doing that from. I started uh, in the early 1980s, and I'd made friends in, uh, in the town of Peter Maritzburg, which is in the eastern part of the country, in the province which is now called KwaZulu-Natal. And a lot of the friends that I had at the time were 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 anti-apartheid activists from the 70s. I met them in the early 1980s and, and, and through my convictions about against apartheid and through their convictions, I got drawn into the political process. Initially in Peter Maritzburg, uh, th- through an organization called the Committee for Concern, and that then became the UDF, the United Democratic Front in Peter Maritzburg, which was basically through the 1980s, from 1983 onwards into the, into the early 1990s, the internal, functioned as the internal wing of the ANC uh, in the country. What sort of things were you involved in when you were doing your campaigning? Was it sort of uh, how, how active were you? I was I was quite active. I mean, I, I was a uh, I was an archaeologist at the museum, so I, I had a day job which was uh, doing archaeology. 
But over the weekends and the evenings, we uh, I used to I was involved in political activity in the early 1980s. In 19, I think it was 83, 84, uh, with uh, with friends and and uh, colleagues, we'd be out on the streets uh, campaigning against the government, and this meant going door to door in some of the the suburbs, not so much the suburbs, but the sort of the townships uh, surrounding Peter Maritzburg, or on the, uh, asking people not to take part in in uh, sort of the national party uh, political activities that were trying to pe- draw people certainly from the engine and the colored communities into into their political process and we were campaigning against that and then later on um, I became part of the UDF so I would attend meetings but two of the things that uh, myself and my partner or wife and uh, friends did is th- from about the mid 1980s onwards there was a lot of uh, um, violence in and around Peter Maritzburg and and at the forefront in the in the townships were young young activists kids as young as 14 15 through into the early 20s and with the ebb and flow of the violence a lot of them got flushed out of the townships through through on the one hand the Encarta Freedom Party which uh, although they might uh, argue against it were, were part of the state apparatus uh, at the time and these kids needed refuge so we would we would take them into our homes look after them um, some of them would uh, from there go off into exile to join them which was the the military wing of the ANC others went on to other things in and around Peter Maritzburg there was one young woman who in fact has stayed with us on and off for six years and went on to become quite an important figure in local politics in Peter Maritzburg. So that was one of the things we did. But also from about 86, 87 onwards, I started to use my camera uh, in, uh, in the townships around Peter Maritzburg, photographing what was going on because it was very little getting out. So I would be I, I would be called on weekends, told about funerals, uh, various activities, and I spent a lot of my weekends out in the townships photographing rallies, events, funerals, a whole a whole range of things. And that meant uh, getting into, in fact, I used to steal into the museum darkroom on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday morning, uh, develop the film, print the photographs, and then try and get them out. And occasionally I had pictures published in the national and international press. And I wondered if maybe you could tell us what, you touched on it earlier, but what, what really motivated you to become uh, a campaigner? You know, I, uh, I grew up in a family which had suffered quite a lot through the Holocaust. My, uh, my grandparents were actually killed uh, on the 23rd of August, 1941, along with 7,500 people in the, t- the town that my father grew up in, in Lithuania. And I think... From a from a young age, I had a, a deep sense of injustice around oppression, and I think it must have been partly nurtured through through that experience. And although I might not have been completely conscious of it at the time, but subliminally, I think I had a sense of of how the impact that oppression uh, had on people, and I, I suspect that for me that was probably the spark that uh, that that got me going. And at university in the 1970s, there was it was uh, a build-up of p- political activity. I was I was quite political then, but I, I wasn't actually that involved that uh, in the 70s. That really emerged in the, in the early 1980s. 
Uh, in terms of Mandela, I mean, how did you feel when you saw this figure sort of emerging and the world started to wake up to, to what was happening in South Africa? Well, you know, that's really from the early mid 80s. People had been ca campaigning inside the country for the release of Mandela. That and then it became a worldwide campaign. So that, you know, that, that was something that uh, sort of emerged in, internally in, in the country. In a way, what, hap what happened was people, although he was still in prison, the ANC that he was the internal leader of was unbanned on the streets by people before the government uh, did that legally. So the, in, I think it was in early 1990, um, the government unbanned the ANC. But in fact, I could show you pictures from, from the sort of late 80s in the, in, the, in the streets of Peter Maritzburg where people were waving flags of the ANC and the, the South African uh, Communist Party. So the government really legitimi legitimized through the laws what the people on the ground had really been doing for a while. When, when Mandela came out, it was, a, it was an absolute thrill. I, at the time, didn't have a television because the one, I didn't, my wife and I didn't want to expose our daughters, our young daughters, to what was being shown, the propaganda, on, uh, on television at the time. So, in fact, we had to go to some friends to watch his release. But it was, it was an incredible thrill to see that. And, and, and it was a very emotional to know that what people had been striving for, for, for many years, and particularly in the, in the previous 10 years, because there had been quite a, an upsurge in activity, had now come to fruition. And, and Mandela was free, and, and there was some kind of a normalization, although it still took a bit of time, uh, of political activity inside, inside the country. I'm right in thinking you actually did meet Mandela on on, a, on at least one occasion. Can can you tell us about that? Well, in you know in uh, in February, about two weeks after he was released, he came down to KwaZulu Natal or to Natal, and uh, he made a, a speech, which is which I suppose has, has gone down as being quite famous, where he he told people to throw their weapons into the sea, and he was booed at that uh, event. That that was quite interesting to see people booing him and then walking away there were thousands of folk there but he he had he obviously had a vision of what he thought should go on and i'm not sure how much he actually knew about the the violence on the ground in uh, in and around places like durban but especially peter maritzburg which is where i was from so in the wake of that about a month after that in in the Peter Matzburg area, and something uh, there was uh, a, a quite a lot of violence which uh, erupted where the, the Encarta Freedom Party attacked many areas which, uh, uh, which were under the, I suppose, uh, under the ANC at the time. And 20,000 people were displaced from their homes, and I think up to about 200 people were killed. And so this had a huge impact on the area around Peter Maritzburg. And Mandela himself came down in early, early April, I think it was 2nd or 3rd of April, to see what had, uh, had been happening, to give people comfort, and also to, to rally people, to give them strength to carry on. And he, he arrived and he did a lot of rallies and press conferences during that time. And one of the places he visited was a, uh, a township called Impopomeni, which is just outside Peter Maritzburg. And he visited the Catholic Church there because, in fact, the church had been vandalized by members of Incarta. And he wanted to, to see what had happened. So we were, we were at this church having a look at it. 
And I'd walked around the back of the church. Madela was in the front. And we both entered the church at the same time. And there was just the two of us in the church. And uh, we walked towards each other. We shook hands. We had a, a conversation. I think we asked how each other was. We had a conversation. And then we both went out uh, the ways that we had come in on opposite sides of the church. But it was quite a, a magical moment to meet this man that one had heard so much about. And, and, uh, and there was just a fantastic presence and aura about him. And, and also humility. That, you know, you asked who I was and uh, what I did and, and so on. Yeah. Must have been an amazing moment. So, like you said, the humility, everything that you noticed. What What was your overriding impression when you when you left the building that that moment? Could you believe you'd <laughs> met him? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, it was it was just a very it was a chance happening. And uh, what can I say? It was it was just a moment. It was absolutely fantastic. But you know, but a year and a half after that, in the, it was it late 1991. I I attended a, a wedding of Jay Naidu, who was at the in the early 1990s, in fact, in the 1980s and then into the early 1990s as well, he was the general secretary of the Congress of South African Trade Unions, which was one of the was the largest trade union inside the country and one of the primary uh, organizations fighting against apartheid. And I knew Jay from uh, from Peter Maritzburg in the 1980s. And we went to his wedding and Mandela was at the wedding. And my young daughters danced in front of him with, together with some other lasses uh, who were at the wedding. And that was also fantastic to see. It was just the, the sparkle in his eyes and the absolute pleasure that he had in seeing these, these kids. Because one hears about Mandela's love of children. And I can tell you, it's certainly not something that was made up just for, uh, for, for, new, you know, for news purposes. He absolutely was thrilled by seeing these young lasses dancing in front of him. But, you know, he told a funny, a funny story uh, at the wedding because he arrived quite casually dressed in white and everybody else was formally dressed. And Mandela it was well known for paying a lot of attention to his clothes. And he, he gave a speech at the wedding and uh, it was really interesting. It was quite funny because uh, what he said had happened that he'd, you know, he'd been in prison for 27 years. And he was, although it was a year and a half after he'd been released, he was still, I think he was still finding his way in society. So you asked one of his daughters, I think it was Zinzi, you asked her, he's going to this young person's wedding, what should he dress up? You know, what, where, what should he wear? And she said to him, look, these young people, you should go quite casually dressed. So he dressed casually with a white shirt, white trousers, white shoes. And when he arrived, everyone else was very formally, formally dressed. And he obviously felt a bit put out <laughs> by this. So it's just a funny sort of anecdote about him, which, is, which shows, you know, it just shows the way he was, he was quite self-deprecating in some ways as well. People loved him be there. But the other thing about him, at that wedding, there were some other ANC luminaries and who were compat you know who who worked with Mandela from the from the 1930s 1940s onwards so it wasn't just Mandela who was there there was someone called Oliver Tambo who had uh, led the ANC in exile uh, for i think for for about what 30 years or so Walter Sisulu who uh, who died about 10 years ago 
had in fact in the 1930s or early 40s and drawed Mandela into the into the ANC and and uh, Albertina Cecilia the wife of uh, Walter Cecilia was, was there as well so Mandela wasn't alone as as being a, a high profile figure at the wedding it was just incredible to see all these uh, all these people together and I think Mandela would be the would have been the first to have, to have acknowledged that although a lot of praise gets heaped on him uh, there were there were there were several of them that worked quite closely together from the mid 40s onwards who who just did an amazing job uh, in terms of you know in terms of keeping the ANC going and then ultimately bringing freedom to South Africa i mean given your experiences what how did you react when you found uh, last week that that he had died i think with everyone else i was extremely sad and uh, by this it you know it, it, it was. Uh, we knew it was going to happen in the sense that he was 95. He'd been frail for a while, but then when it actually happens, it, it came as as a shock with great sadness. But I think the you know the if you get the news reports from inside South Africa, they, they, there's a mixture. You know, there's sadness on the one hand, but there's this a joy and give and celebrating the life of a man who uh, lived to the age of 95 on the one hand and. Uh, accomplished much of what he had set out to do in his life so i think one has to you know one has to celebrate that as well so a mixture of feelings absolutely and and what do you think will be his legacy i you know i think his legacy is going to play itself out in years to come i think you know one of his legacies will be the fact that he calmed the country down in the in the early 90s uh, and into the mid 90s as well in April 93, I remember it was on, on, the week, on a weekend in April, it was the Easter weekend, Chris Harney, who was a, also a key figure, younger than Mandela, but a key figure in the ANC and in the liberation struggle, and he was assassinated by white supremacists. And the country was, uh, it was a lot of anger associated with that because Harney was an extremely popular figure, loved by, certainly by the youth in the townships. And there was a lot of violence beginning to unfold in the wake of that. And it was Mandela. The, the government couldn't have done this. It was Mandela. And I remember he came onto television that night and he basically calmed the country down. And, and that was just remarkable. He had the ability to, to do that. Um, and I think that's, that, that legacy of calming the country down, the legacy of or forgiveness and trying to bring together people together, I think is one uh, which... Which is going to last for a long time. I think there have been some uh, some issues. South Africa has faltered, but if you look at some of the images coming out of South Africa today, and seeing the non-racial crowds gathered around his house in uh, in Johannesburg, uh, his old house in Soweto as well, I think that's that's just something to behold. I mean, that's that's absolutely incredible. It's it's, it's not something you would have seen. Uh, 30, 25, 30 years ago. I can remember being in the townships around Peter Maritzburg, going to some of these meetings, to these rallies. I was the only white person there. White people didn't go in, or very seldom went into the townships. And you're now seeing them going in, into townships, into Soweto, to celebrate the man's life. So I think there's still a long way to go, but it's only been, what, 19 years since uh, South Africa became independent or became a democratically independent country. Uh, and, he, and the legacy is the platform that he set and which will hopefully live on into the future. Fantastic. And, and, and do you think there'll ever be anybody quite like Mandela again? I, I, 
you know, he emerged in a particular historical framework. I, I can't. I can't see that there will be, certainly not in, for the foreseeable future. He, uh, him and his colleagues, and Sisulu and Tambo and uh, Garvin and Becky, these guys, they had a, they had a special responsibility vis-a-vis -vis their country. And uh, I can't see there in the next wee while being someone of his stature emerging in, you know, not just South Africa, in anywhere in the world, really. And the fact that, what, 60 to 100 world leaders are making the way to South Africa at the minute to, to attend his memorial service, and some will probably stay on for his funeral over the weekend, or more will come for his funeral, is just, uh, just remarkable, actually. That was Aaron Mazel. For more on Nelson Mandela, including a text version of this interview do visit our website, historyextra.com. Plus, as I mentioned before, we'll be talking more about the South African leader in our January issue out in a couple of weeks. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast.historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can also keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter, at History Extra, plus we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, where we've got the latest history news, blogs, galleries, quizzes and more. Next week, we'll be bringing you our festive history quiz, so do make sure you tune in for that. And if you are looking forward to hearing about Tudor voyages and the Black Death this week, then don't worry, we'll be bringing that to you in a couple of weeks' time. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. <laughs>